excellent sermonette by Mr. Crockett, and I hope you're all listening. And uh, we certainly have been blessed in the work recently, frankly, very much. In fact, very recently, we were a little concerned through the summer as a whole. Things were a little slow in the income because we didn't have a coworker letter for two months in a row. But just recently, we've had record television responses, as Mr. Ames indicated, for the summer, just record responses, and we're very grateful for that. And then I talked to uh, Mrs. Lyons the other day. She's been keeping a list of the go-tos for me. And we had a 52% increase in the first uh, eight months of this year in the number of uh, uh, prospective members writing in for a visit. That's quite an increase. Mr. Armstrong was happy when he got 20 or 30% for something, but at least so far we have a 52% increase in new people requesting to come to church or at least requesting a visit. And we've had really big growth recently, and donors especially, and that line just shot up in a remarkable way. And also, of course, we've increased in the number of coworkers more than usual, too. So that indicates we're laying the groundwork. It's not happening yet, but we're laying the groundwork for a surge in church attendance around the country and a great deal more impact, you know, in the whole world. And we pray that God will make that possible. So we are very grateful for that. But... As John Paul Jones is reputed to have said, this naval hero, uh, we have just begun to fight, <laughs> and you know that. We're just still very small, and the work has a long, long way to go. So we're certainly not going to rest on our laurels. We have just begun, but we're grateful that we are having some growth and thankful to God for that. But we've got to have much more. But rather, when real growth and real power in this work comes, everything in the Bible tells us clearly that persecution will come with it. No question about that. You know, just statement after statement in the Bible tells us of that fact. I'm not going to even try to read them all. I just want to read one here in Matthew. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24 at this point. Matthew, that famous Olivet prophecy, and Christ here was asked, when will the end be? And he describes wars and rumors of wars. And then in verse 7 Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, indicating a different Greek word here, world war. And there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Luke says great earthquakes. All these are the beginning of sorrows. That's just the beginning. Then they will deliver you, meaning the Christians, after tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. As I've said before, brethren... They can't hate us. How can all nations hate us? Think about it. They don't even know that we exist. If you put all the little scattered churches of God together, they don't even know that we exist as a whole. You know, they're just a tiny, maybe 1% or less of the world's even aware of our existence. So they're not going to hate us for a while until there's a great deal more power in the work of God. But it did say, Christ said, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another, hate one another, and then many false prophets, not a few, another wave of false prophets will come along and mix people up and will deceive many, not the few, but many. And because of lawlessness, because people turn away from a whole idea of obeying law and certainly God's law, the love of many will abound, the love of many will wax cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, brethren, we've got to find a way to endure to the end. 
We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be known. We can't hide in this little hall in our little tiny one building headquarters forever. We're going to be known around the world within five or ten years and probably a lot less than ten years. And we need to recognize that and be aware of that. We want growth. We've got to have more power. But please recognize, you brethren here and in this room and all around the world as you're hearing this or viewing this, that we are going to be persecuted and you've got to have strength within yourself to carry on and endure to the end. And Jesus tells us to do that. And this gospel then of the kingdom, not about Jesus' person, but the message he preached of the coming kingdom of God, whereas he said one man would be given rule over five cities and another over ten cities, and the whole government of God would be established here on this earth. This good news of the coming government of God to help those people that are being raped and beaten and humiliated and starved in Darfur and Somalia, all over, of course, the former nation of Sudan, all over the Congo, all over vast nations all over the world, in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Central South America, and everywhere these things are carrying on. And God's kingdom is really needed very, very much, and we can help people. It's a good news, a wonderful news that we have if we understand it. But we're to preach the good news of the coming government of God as a witness, not to convert everybody. I wish everybody would be converted. But God is not trying to save the world now at all. We're to preach it as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And the last sign he gives here is this abomination of desolation, of course, set up in the holy place in Jerusalem. But let's go back. He shows just before all this that the people of God would be persecuted, and many will be killed. And he tells us to endure to the end. And brethren, we know that we're going to have religious persecution. There's going to be a United States of Europe, a revived Roman Empire, I should say, rising in Europe. They're not going to like us at all because we'll be exposing exactly who they are. And then the mainstream Protestants won't like it that we're telling about the problems that they have. Other people in the world in general won't like us as we're preaching the truth of God. And then there's another huge element of the world that's going to hate us perhaps more than we realize as we get bigger and more powerful and hate our nation. And just to sort of help us understand a little bit about where we are, I want to read you something from a book that Mr. Crockett recommended to me, and I've been reading. It's called The Crisis of Islam. I would recommend this book to all of you. We can't send this out for free. It's a commercial book. But if any of you have the money and want to, get it. The Crisis of Islam by Bernard Lewis. And Bernard Lewis is one of the most respected scholars about the Middle East and Islam in the whole world. He is the emeritus professor of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University, and he's generally regarded as the world's greatest expert. So I'm telling all of you, and I want you people and you new people and you young people to realize this is not some church doctrine I'm talking about. This is talking about, this is a message from perhaps the world's greatest scholar outside of being an Islamist himself, about this whole topic. He describes this message that was posted by the Al-Qaeda back in February 23, 1998, in an Arabic newspaper printed, published in London, and how they printed the full text of a declaration of the World Islamic Front for Jihad against the Jews and the Crusaders. Who are the Crusaders? That's you and me. The American and British people are the Crusaders. And they hate us. 
And then he goes on to describe, or this document does, that three main facts. For more than seven years, the United States is occupying the lands of Islam. In other words, we've been in, for some years, various parts of Iraq, and we've been with their Jewish allies, and they bring that in into uh, to, uh, parts of what they, what they call as their land in Palestine and all this kind of thing. Second, despite the immense destruction inflicted on the Iraqi people at the hands of the Crusader Jewish Alliance, they're always hooking us in with the Jews, in spite of the appalling number of the dead and so on, we're continuing to do these things. Third, while the purposes of the Americans in these wars are religious and economic, they also serve the petty state of the Jews. So they're constantly bringing the Jews into it, whom they hate. The document goes on to say these crimes, the statement goes on to say, amount to a clear declaration of war, quote-unquote, by the Americans against God, against his prophet, against the Muslims. In such a situation, it is the unanimous opinion of the ulema, that is, their Muslim religionists throughout the centuries, that when enemies attack Muslim lands, jihad, most of you know what that means, jihad means holy war, becomes a personal duty of every Muslim. That's quote, unquote. That's their duty. They quote various Muslim authorities and then proceed to the final and most important part of their declaration, the fatwa. That's a declaration, an order, laying down that, quote, to kill Americans, this is in quotes, to kill Americans and their allies, both civil and military, is an individual duty of every Muslim who is able in any country where this is possible until the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem and the Haram Mosque in Mecca are freed from their grip and until their army, shattered and broken wing, departs from all the lands of Islam, incapable of threatening any Muslim, end quote. After citing some further relevant Quran, that's their holy book, verses, we call it the Quran, the document continues, this is a quote now, quote, by God's leave, we call on every Muslim who believes in God and hopes for reward to obey God's command to kill the Americans and plunder their possessions wherever he finds them and whenever he can. Likewise, we call on the Muslim ulema and leaders and, and youth and soldiers to launch attacks against the armies of the American devils and against those who are allied with them from the helpers of Satan. End of quotation. You think about that. Is this some uh, little sect off in a corner somewhere? Or is this a worldwide religion of over one billion human beings? This book goes out to clearly delineate the fact that they operate totally differently from any other church. They talk about the Arab nation. They talk about the Muslim peoples, and they are together in every land. You don't have a Protestant group of people that get all upset about every little war and stand together, and so far not even a Catholic one, as this writer points out. You do have it among the Muslims, and they don't all go along with it, but increasing millions of them do. Increasing tens of millions of them do. This is what they are told to do by some of these radical leaders. I'd better not read more of that, but maybe you can begin to realize the fact we are living in dangerous times. There's never been a time like this, brethren, when our nation is being invaded by millions of illegal aliens who come in, don't even get a driver's license, take over things and this and that, and I'm not attacking any of our Hispanic brethren at all. 
We don't go into their lands and break their laws and try to go around without a driver's license and do all that kind of thing. And we should not permit that here. But this is beginning to happen. And they're talking about taking over the entire southwest part of the United States again, very openly. Patrick Buchanan has a new book about that out. You might think about it. Very interesting. Cited in the paper this morning, the Charlotte Observer. We have over one billion Muslims who are after us and may kill us any time and in any part of the world. And we have the outside religionists and Christianity, so-called, who will hate us because we talk about getting back to the true religion of Christ, which they do not understand, and to which they're totally blind. Not their fault. We don't hate them. They're blind. But they don't understand that they're blind. You know, if you're deceived, you don't know that you're deceived. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, otherwise you wouldn't be deceived. <laughs> so they don't know that. And they're deceived. And brethren, they're going to have that hate. And so how are we going to endure to the end in this kind of a world and all kinds of other problems I could bring up that are taking place all over the world, including the ones that Jesus just talked about, war, world war, drought, famine, raging disease epidemics, great earthquakes, and then all these other things. There are many keys, many keys to faithfulness. I'm not just saying what I'm saying is, is the only one, but it is a vital key that is often overlooked. And I want to talk to you a little bit this afternoon about that key because this key will help revive some of you old-timers out there who may have been sitting on your hands a lot of people in God's church says, well, we're here and they've been here and they don't get excited about anything. And we have a lot of our youth who just grow up in the church, our young children and children of others here in the church who are just in their teens and early 20s or wherever. They're not sure. They've seen the church dissolve. They've seen the church fall apart. That is worldwide. They've seen the problems we've had with our splits and United has had splits and all these other groups have had splits. They've seen that. They don't know what's going on. Who can I trust? What can I do? You need to think about that, all of you people and you young people. Learn to think clearly. Be sure of what you're doing. And this key today that I'm going to give you will help you sincerely to be sure of what's going on if you will learn to use this key. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy, brethren, chapter 4, and here is a message. Some of you young people or new people might not understand this, but most of you realize that we are the descendants of the so-called lost ten tribes of Israel. And this is for us when you understand it. It's talking about Israel at the time of the end, frankly, because the message comes clear down to the last days. Deuteronomy 4, God is speaking to our great-great-grandfathers here. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 20. Uh, uh, 20, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 25. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land, act corruptly and make a carved image or have all kinds of TV sets and microwaves and stuff you're worshiping, your material goods, whatever form of worship it takes, in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the eternal, even your churches are allowing the, 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 the queers to marry, lesbians and homosexual men to marry men and men and women to marry, marry women and even put these people into the ministry of all things. This kind of thing going on increasingly in our land, any kind of evil, 
to provoke God to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you go across Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days, but you will be utterly destroyed. You say, well, that's talking about back there. Well, it is in principle, but certainly it talks about us in principle today, the same thing. And the eternal will scatter you among the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the eternal drives you. And from there you will serve God's the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor smell. As my wife and I have trekked through Europe and go occasionally just as tourists in these big cathedrals, you see these stone images and idols all over the place. Millions of people. These older women come turn aside from these little side altars with candles and saints' pictures or, excuse me, statues of St. Joseph or St. Mary or St. Uh, Josephine or St. this and St. that, and they have tears in their eyes. They've been praying to this hunk of rock. That's what they've been praying to, this hunk of rock. They're deceived by so-called Christianity. He says, you're going to be made to do this. You're going to get involved in this. But from there, in this coming slavery, you will seek the eternal your God and you will find him. How are you going to find God when you're really in trouble? How are you going to find God, some of you young people who are not sure what's up? All over the world, a number of you young people in your teens and 20s, you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. You may say, now, I don't care about seeking God. Maybe that's so. But as these things start happening, God help you to begin to realize that our life is like a vapor, as the Bible tells us. Many of our loved ones are dead. And lots of others are going to be dead over the next few years. And young people die. And millions of them are going to be dying around us when the disease epidemics and other things occur. And people are going to start thinking, what's going on? How can I be sure? You will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress, and we will be in distress, my brethren, and all these things come upon you when... In the latter days, when you turn to the eternal your God and obey his voice, when that finally happens, that is a vital, vital key. God becomes real and personal to you. Not just that you're in the church because somehow you heard Mr. Armstrong or heard our program or you young people, you just grew in the church, grew up in the church and here you are. God becomes real and personal when you have learned perhaps through some trauma in your life, to seek God. Say, Father, why am I here? God, if you're there, show me. I want to know. I want to be sure. And when you go through an experience and have the spiritual and intellectual courage to act on that and start seeking God, you will find God. And God promises that and shows us that many times in the Bible. And we do need to understand So then God becomes real and personal. Way back when I was 14, going on 15, my friend Jimmy Mallett had his neck broken. I've told you that story in wrestling. He and I had wrestled in the Bermuda grass and various vacant lots around the west end of Joplin. I think I can honestly say hundreds of hours, like two little teddy bears rolling around, trying out holds on each other. We loved each other. He grew up right across the alley from me. He was a year older, but a little bit shorter than average, so we were about the same size. 
and he was a little little better built, a little shorter, but more socky, and I was a little taller, more skinny, and a year younger. But we had went at each other, and we would talk together what's going on. And together we wrote off for Dingle to this guy named Dingle out in L.A., the wisdom of the East, and he used to have these ads coming out, sort of a sun, a picture of a rising sun or setting, rising sun it would have been, and the wisdom of the East that is great hidden, most people don't understand. So we wrote off to learn the wisdom of the East, trying to understand what's going on. And we got a bunch of double talk and gobbledygook that meant absolutely nothing, and I was sensible enough to figure that out, and so was he. We tried out various other things together. And then he died, and his neck was broken, and as they were lowering Jimmy into the ground, and I was one of the pallbearers at his funeral, it really hit me, and I can remember that to this day. Why did God let Jimmy die? Jimmy was a good fellow, a nice young man. Why did God let Jimmy die? And from then on, in my own way, imperfect as it was, and it was very imperfect and very slow, I began to seek God. And I began to gradually hear Mr. Armstrong as my uncle got me interested in hearing his broadcast. And I didn't hear it regularly. I should have, but from time to time. And after a year or two, I got my own copy of the Plain Truth magazine. And I got a copy of the United States and Britain and Prophecy. And years later, when I came to college, that's about all I knew. I came to Ambassador College. I did not know about the Sabbath. I did not know about the Holy Days. I didn't know about clean and unclean meats. You name it, I didn't know about it. I didn't know about the name Church of God. He didn't talk about that on the radio program. <laughs> I did know that Jesus Christ gave a message of obeying God's law, the Ten Commandments. He expounded the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels. It made sense to me, that way of life, and that a true Christian was one who followed Christ's example. And I did know there was a great God, by that time I felt pretty sure, a great God who intervened in human affairs. And I recognized that there's something very special about our peoples and why we have all the blessings we do. And I came to college to find out the answers. But I began to seek God in my own way by praying very imperfectly. Instead of saying, now I'll lay me down to sleep, I would start out as my parents had taught me. And then I'd go on and say, Father in heaven, you know, and maybe I'd repeat the Lord's Prayer and then ask a few other things gradually, a little bit more and more. Then to the time I'd had a year of junior college, and in junior college I was majoring in business administration, but I felt I had to take one extra course on philosophy. I wanted to know what's going on, so I studied philosophy. And the teacher was very good because he was not a normal junior college teacher. He had just retired from the University of Iowa, which is a very big, very respected college back there of 20 or 30,000 students. And he reached their formal retirement age. And so they pushed him out. And he came back home to Joplin, taught us. <laughs> so we were lucky to have him in that since he was very smart and very balanced overall. In fact, he was a retired Methodist minister, so he knew a little bit about the Bible, not much, but he had a sort of religious bent, but still he taught us all the stuff about Plato and Aristotle and later on Locke and Hume and the British philosophers and many, many others. So I studied that, and I realized how empty that was. In the meantime, Mr. Armstrong's voice was thundering through the radio at night, and my mother wanted to know what Roderick was hearing. So she would sit next to me sometimes and she got upset because Mr. Armstrong's voice was real strong and I turned it up loud because it would come from XEG down in Mexico and in the winter it was static. All the static noise. And so it kind of bothered her and as it would me today with my hearing aid. And she said, Roderick, why does he talk about the beast? 
Why can't he talk about love? <laughs> and uh, so, I, but still, I, I realized he made sense. God was not calling my mother yet. It wasn't her fault. God will call her later. She was just trying to protect her son. Then I went finally out to Idaho. I'd worked in Oregon the previous summer, but this summer stopped along to see my second cousin on the way to Oregon, and he hired my friends and me in the government dam project out northeast of Boise, Idaho, on the mountains. And I was able to go to Mormon meetings and realize how empty that was, and Youth for Christ, and realized how empty that was. In the meantime, I was still reading the plain truth and starting to read the Bible. Had a Catholic friend and was able to have some long talks and arguments with him. And when he would go into Boise every other weekend, uh, he would give me half his money. And he, he would argue, but he sensed I was sincere and honest, so he gave me half his money, not the other guy. I said, so what are you going to do with the other half? Well, he was going to spend that on, frankly, wine, women, and song. And we'd go around, and I, my friends and I would have a couple of beers, but this guy and this older guy was with him, and they would be with these bar girls, and we knew what they were up to. So he'd give that money to that cause, then he'd get the money for me the next morning and give it to the priest. You see, he was able to buy his way out, he thought. I'm not saying that's official Catholic doctrine. I'm just saying that if you read history, you know, you can sort of understand the way a lot of them think. That's why Martin Luther got all upset because of the indulgences that this Tetzel was selling all over Europe. You pay so much money, you get so much of your sin forgiven, and this type of approach in that religion. It all began to dawn on me that something was wrong with mainstream religion to say the least. And so I came down to Ambassador College to learn the truth, which I did. Then later, after several months there, I went through a period where Betty Bates, the only girl in college, she said, Rod, are you going to stay here? She could see I was troubled. I wasn't sure I was trying to prove things. And I said, well, I want to stay through at least the end of the year to be really sure. But then a month or so later, I was baptized. And I prayed. And I remember there was a broom closet in Mayfair, the student dormitory, the fellows lived on the third floor. The girls, uh, no old ladies in their 70s and 80s on the second floor. And the one girl, Betty, lived with Annie Mann, the house mother, on the, on the first floor. But we fellows all had prayer rooms stuck here and there. And my prayer room, all the other good ones were taken. But mine ended up being the broom closet in the basement at the bottom of the steps. <laughs> so I went down there and put a newspaper on the concrete so my pants wouldn't get too dirty. And I would pray and ask God, please help me to be sure. I want to know and I want to know that I know. And the more I studied and studied the book and watched world events and analyzed the whole thing, the more I realized nothing else fits. This is the truth. And then certain things happened to shake me up, and then I was baptized. But I went through that period of seeking God, studying and praying and crying out to God in my own very imperfect way before I was finally baptized. And that helped me, of course, in that particular point in life. Back in Isaiah 55, Isaiah chapter 55, brethren, and you'll notice here something you've mostly read, I hope, very fundamental scripture, Isaiah 55, verse 6. God tells us through his servant, seek the eternal while he may be found. Doesn't say just, uh, well, casually be interested. Seek God. Seek him while he may be found. You may not have the opportunities later on. 
You may be in a concentration. You may be dead. Seek God while you have the opportunity. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. I had my own attitudes and my own human reasoning about things as I grew up, as most people do. Nor are your ways my ways, says the eternal For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's whole mind, the way he looks down from heaven and he sees the various nations and they're foolish. They're going the wrong way. He thwarts the counsels of men. He turns them into nothing, as he says in a number of places in the Bible, because they don't know what to do. They're having this terrible problem with Iran now refusing to stop manufacturing equipment toward the atomic bomb they're obviously planning to build. And so what are they doing? They're saying, well, we won't accept that, but we're really not going to do anything. We're just having peaceful things. And so the United Nations is doing this dance. Well, we're going to talk. Well, they've been talking for a couple of years. How many more years are they going to talk? Till New York gets bombed? Till London gets bombed? They don't know what to do. They don't understand the mind of these Muslims. They do not understand, and God does understand, and God helps us have understanding if we're willing to take that understanding and prove to ourselves there is a real God, and this book, the Bible, is his revelation. I would say to you, by the way, I could take it for granted that you're all excited about Dr. Winnell's new booklet. I am. I've read it a couple times, or three times, I guess, because of helping even in its formation and editing or whatever, but it's an excellent booklet. How many of you have read that booklet? I'm not asking you to show your hands, but just think about it. You brethren in Perth, Australia, you don't need to show your hands. I'm not there. (laughs) But all around the world, get that booklet. It's free if you haven't got it yet. Study it. Prove to yourself that this book is inspired of the great God who guides the rise and fall of nations. And God is speaking through this book. Then you begin to understand Because you're not just to seek any old God or any concept of God. I was hearing the National Public Radio this morning, as I often do. Sometimes I hear KBT, the local news station, or non-news station a lot of times. They just blat on and have all these uh, red redneck men talking about politics a lot of times and so on. But anyway, NPR has a lot of news, but they have a very liberal viewpoint, of course, so I get disturbed at their liberalism, but they're very smart people. Often the smart people are so smart they think they can figure things out, which they cannot, but they at least give a lot more news. And they were, they go into various interesting subjects, all kinds of subjects that are interesting, national public radio. Today, this morning, as I was trying to wait till 10 o'clock and the news would come on then, I tuned in a few minutes early, otherwise they missed it, you know, it starts and I'm doing something else. Well, they had the end of this program about the Japanese shamakatsu or whatever it was, <clears throat> this kind of an in- instrument, kind of go, Ooh, kind of a sound it makes. And they were showing that these Japanese Buddhists were real heavy into that. And they were, some of their spiritual leaders were trying to find the exact sound that would bring them spiritual enlightenment. <laughs> and that's nice. It sounds like the hippies, you know, and uh, whatever. But anyway, they're trying to find the right sound that would give them spiritual enlightenment. Here is the right sound right here. 
part of the sound that comes out of this particular instrument here, I'm holding in my hand, the Bible, is Jesus' statement, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That is spiritual enlightenment. That's the only place you're going to find spiritual enlightenment. Somewhere along the line, you have to figure that out. I've read various portions of the Bhagavad Gita and the Koran and the Book of Mormon and these other books, never exhaustively, but it's a lot of foolishness. They don't have the answer. It's obvious. As Dr. Linnell's booklet points out, none of those other books specifically talk about prophecy. They can't tell the rise and fall of cities and nations. Specifically, their gods don't know. These guys in Japan seeking for enlightenment and these other people trying to get spiritual experiences through drugs or through meditation, they, they hear this sound and they meditate and they're saying, in a sense, without you realizing it, some of you think about it, you, you do realize that they're thinking, in a sense, often, I'm not saying all of them, well, maybe God will show me something. God show me, and then they get an idea, they get a concept, they get spiritual enlightenment. All right? They do get something. Where is it from? It's not from this book. It's not from the Creator God. There are demons everywhere to give a type of spiritual enlightenment to all these different religions of the world. And they can have a spiritual experience. But they do not understand the God of creation. They do not understand what is beginning to specifically happen to this nation and to the British descended peoples. And what is going to continue to happen, just like we have said and like God has said. They don't know those specific things and all the other specific things that God's Word says. They're looking in the wrong place. So we want to learn to look in the right place and seek the true God, the God of the Bible. Turn to Second Chronicles, if you would, at this point. Second Chronicles, and I'm going to begin reading here in Second Chronicles 15. Get some of this tea. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 15, it tells here how the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, obviously a prophet here, and he went out to meet Asa. Here was the king of Judah, who was a righteous king for most of his life, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Eternal is with you while you are with him. If you seek him... Get that. Here's the key thing. If you seek Him, you've got to seek God. You've got to want God. You've got to want God's guidance. You've got to want God's help. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you will forsake Him, He will forsake you. And he goes on and describes uh, how the people then, verse 12, entered into a covenant to seek the eternal their God with all their heart and with all their soul. The whole nation of Judah at that point under this righteous king entered into this covenant. And verse 15, all Judah rejoiced at the oath for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them. And the eternal gave them rest. No more war for a while. God gave them rest all around. So God was with them because they were trying sincerely to seek him. Notice in chapter 20 at this point. Second Chronicles chapter 20, and let's begin here in uh, verse uh, 1 also. It happened after this 
that the people of Moab and Ammon and others with them beside the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Here was another great king, a wonderful man, a king of Judah. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you beyond the sea from Syria and there in Hazra and Tamar, which is in, in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat prayed. Apparently Judah had been decimated by the unrighteous kings of the past, and he, they were greatly outnumbered, obviously, by a much, much greater army. Just like, brethren, we are immeasurably in, in, in outnumbered by the rest of the world. We don't have any power against this world around us. We're puny. Only the God of heaven, the God who's looking down from heaven right now, only that God can help us. Only that God protect us. Only that God can deliver us. And we have to really understand that. And so Jehoshaphat, what did he do? He feared. That's good. That gets your glands going. The adrenaline starts flowing. You get alert. He had the deep awareness. And set not, not an awesome, terrible fear, though, a negative fear, but a good fear. I remember when I was about to run the mile, the adrenaline would get going. And I'd look at this other guy. I'm going to beat this guy. And you get going. And I remember in the golden gloves, they had us sit uh, two by two for about three rows. You'd sit next to the guy you were going to fight. And then you'd move to the next set of chairs toward the front. And then the two of you would move to the front chairs just before you got up. And it was your bout. You kind of look at him and he'd look at you. And, uh, the, you know, they call boxing the gentlemanly art of self-defense. <laughs> they used to call it that. I don't think they call it that anymore. What are you thinking? Well, most of the guys are thinking, I'm going to knock your head off. <laughs> You're not thinking the gentlemanly art of self-defense. I'm going to beat you and so on. But you get this sort of a nervous fear, this tension, you know, and sometimes that can be used in a positive way to get the adrenaline going. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the ever-living one, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and what did he do? How do you do that? He proclaimed a fast. He had the whole nation fast. Everybody went hungry. Wow, you say, how awful. Would you rather go hungry for a day or two than to die and have thousands of dead bodies and corpses of the people you loved and people weeping and crying and shaking as they buried the loved ones all over the nation? No, it's better to go hungry sometimes. He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the ever-living one. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek, yes, to seek God. That is the message. We've got to learn to seek God. And then Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And don't you rule over the nations? And don't you have this power? And so on. And you're going to take care of the people of Israel and how you gave this to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. And so he honored God as he prayed to God. And so then you find a little bit later, uh, as you pick up the story in verse 12, it says, And our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude coming against us, nor do we know what to do. We're weak. We're way outnumbered, Father. Help us. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah with their little ones and their wives and their children stood before the eternal. They all stood up. They were alert. Their nation was in trouble. And they heard this vast army was coming and to wipe them out if God didn't help them. So they stood before God. Then the spirit of the eternal came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, this Levite, this prophet. 
And he said, verse 15, Listen to all, all of you of, Judea, of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. And you, King Jehoshaphat, this prophet told him, Thus says the Eternal to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness. Position yourself, stand still, and see God's intervention. And the next few verses show, in the morning, verse 20, they rose up. Jehoshaphat stood. He said, Believe in the Lord your God, and you'll be established. Believe his prophets. And when he had consulted, he appointed those who sing praises to God and praise in the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. Do they have General Sherman tanks and Polaris missiles? Nope. They had some tambourines or trumpets or whatever, and they went out singing praise to the real God. The real God. That's all they did. That was their weapons, turning to God. Praise the Eternal, for His mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Eternal set ambush against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah, and they were defeated, and they were guided to destroy one another. It says in verse 23, there at the end. And so in verse 24, when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there they were, dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. That's quite a statement. Now you can say, oh, this is just old Hebrew mythology. Okay, you figure it out someday if you believe that. I believe this is the word of God. God intervened in a magnificent way and showed His power to a people where the whole nation stood before God, cried out to God. The king lifted up his eyes and he said, Lord God of the armies of Israel, please intervene and help us. Remember us, your people, your friend Abraham, and your promises you've made. And God did do just that. They sought God, and that is the message we have to understand Turn to Daniel, if you would, brethren, Daniel chapter 9. And I've given you this a number of times, of course, but I want to give it to you now in a different setting, perhaps. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarius, now the Babylonish kings were dead, and now this Persian king rose up who was made king over the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. You see, the people of the Jews were still in slavery. They'd been in slavery under Nebuchadnezzar. They'd been in slavery under Belshazzar. Now here comes along Darius. And I, Daniel, understood by the books, obviously the books of the Bible, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet, how Jeremiah had said there'd be 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. There had been an exact time. It's not wrong to think about when the end of that time is. That's what Daniel did. He was encouraged by that. Then I set my face toward the eternal God to make request by prayer. He said, God, it's about time. Please have mercy on us. Maybe he said, please cut the day short. As God said, he may do it at the time of the end. He set his face to request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. How do you seek God? Brethren, here's the way. You repent with all your heart and with all your soul. You say, Father in heaven, I've done wrong. I've wandered around. I've done things that are not right, but you're not real to me as you should be maybe, and please help me, teach me, guide me. And then you begin to, of course, fast. 
and you begin to pray to God with all your heart. Now, it doesn't say study because at the time of Daniel, they didn't have very much to study. They might have had a few books, as is implied, maybe part of Jeremiah or part of that scroll had been finished by this time and the first five books. But mainly, as they studied those things in detail, the Jews, much more than we do today, the main thing then was to simply study, and I mean, to, to meditate and pray and cry out to God. So he prayed and, and had supplications, repeated heartfelt prayers and fasting. Notice that is always mentioned. Not always, but most of the time when the whole people turned to God, they would fast. Sackcloth and ashes and prayed and said, O eternal God, great and awesome, who keeps covenant and mercy to those who love him and to those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. We've done wrong. Please forgive us. And we as a church need to do that from time to time. And all of us individually, brethren, we can say, God, you've blessed us. You've given us peace in this land. And we water things down. And we have a comfortable life. And we just don't get excited at all. And we made compromises in the way we keep your Sabbath. We've made compromises in the way we continually watch TV, many of us, or do this or do that and water things down in our lives. Have mercy on us and clean us up and scrub us out and help us to be the people of God at the end of an age that you can really use and to whom you can give the gifts of your spirit, the gifts to heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons, and all these things. He said, neither have we heeded your servants the prophets, They had not listened carefully and with deep respect to God's ministers at that time. Now, when he finished praying, of course, then you see how an angel came. And in verse 21, he said, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, reached me about the time of the evening offering and informed me. And he said, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. And then God gave him what we call the 70 weeks prophecy And then all of Daniel 10 and all of Daniel 11 as well, the longest single prophecy in the Bible, and told him all kinds of details about what was going to happen, and much of which has already happened and is happening even today as we speak. So God gave him this tremendous revelation after his fervent prayer and fasting, after he sought God, and he sought him by fervent prayer, repeated heartfelt prayer, and fasting, and so we want to understand that God's greatest servant in our modern times that we know of was named Herbert W. Armstrong. Some of you younger people never knew Mr. Armstrong, but my friend Mr. Apartheid and I did know him. Mr. Apartheid was a personal friend of Mr. Armstrong for many years before he died and got to know him very well. I got to know him for a period of about 36 years as one of the early students in Ambassador College. And I became very close in a certain way because of my friendship with his elder son, Dick, who didn't make me any better. I just had that opportunity. And then Mr. Ames, when he came along and others, got to know Mr. Armstrong personally and talk to them and visit with him, be in his home, have meals with him, and so on. And he was a wonderful man. We do not worship him, as I've said. He made his human mistakes, but there was no man that God used more for hundreds of years than this man. And in his autobiography, and if you can get a hold of this, brethren, I hope all of you will, I was there at Big Sandy when they started these changes, the apostates, and they started throwing away the autobiography and some of the trash bins out back, 
and the Mystery of the Ages book, and I was able to take God, grab a few of them. I should have grabbed a lot more and made an issue of it. I wish now I'd grabbed dozens or something and just kind of argued with them. But I did save a few copies, but I can't give mine away because I use them in the work so much. But get it, chapter, volume one especially is the best one of the two volumes. I mentioned four or five times honorably in volume two, but it's not as helpful because it's more of a put-together volume from his coworker letters and other things like that, where volume one was written slowly and prayerfully himself, typed out with his four fingers of typing, had a four-finger way of typing, very very special if you knew him. He always looked different from anything else. You knew that was from Mr. Armstrong. And he heartfeltly wrote the experiences of one who had been used by God. And I, being from Missouri, checked up on him in the early days. I went up to Oregon and I talked to Mr. and Mrs. Shippert, who were early members. And I talked to Mr. and Mrs. Starkey. She was the first paid employee. I said, did Mr. Armstrong really walk around the hills with holes in his shoes? Yes, he did. Did he really pass out handbills in the rain? Yes, he did. They also told me, they said, Mr. Armstrong was a proud man. We knew, not that he acted arrogant, but we could tell he'd had a lot the way he talked sometimes and acted. But he had to really humble himself because he didn't have anything and he was ashamed to beg. And Mrs. Mrs. Armstrong was not trained to be a housewife and mother. Her mother died when she was very young. And somehow he didn't have buttons or anyone to sew buttons on his coat. So when his overcoat, which is an old worn overcoat, uh, had the buttons off, he would fasten his overcoat together in the winter with a safety pin. It was hard times. And he did do without for many years starting this work. Yes, he did do that. And I double-checked him on that, being from Missouri. You may say, you were kind of mean. Okay, whatever you want to think. But I want to be sure. And I can tell you that because I checked up on him. He says here on page, if you want to write it down and look it up later in your copy, on page 391, volume 1, how they'd been in the financial depths of the hospital bill for our first son's birth. That was Richard David. And they would not admit wife, his wife, until the bill was paid. And she had all these things that had gone wrong with her. And he was scared. And he wondered, what's wrong? He said, the felt could not be with God. I knew it had to be with me. But where? I searched my heart. One condition to receiving miraculous healing is that we obey God. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. First John three twenty two he quotes, but I had surrendered to obey God's commandments three years before. Faith is the second condition, but I believed as firmly as when God first healed my wife. There was no more time to lose. I had to find the answer. I knew of only one way: fasting and prayer. It was the last ditch resort. I didn't know how one ought to fast and pray. I'd never done it before. But when Jesus' disciples were unable to cast out a demon, Jesus said a result like this could only come by fasting and prayer. So I began to fast. That's Mark 9, 29, by the way. The fasting was begun on a Sabbath morning. That morning I ate no breakfast, not knowing how one ought to go about fasting and prayer. I first prayed and asked God to show me the way to open my understanding. Then since God speaks to us through his written word, get this, this is the way he thought and the way you and I should think, I began to search the Bible. 
How do you find God? You search the Bible for instruction about fasting. For one hour, with the aid of a concordance, I studied passages of Scripture on the subject of fasting and praying, much of the time on my knees. I'm not asking you to hold up your hands, but how many of you have studied the Bible on your knees? Perhaps many of us older ones have, because we learned that from Mr. Armstrong. Sometimes it's good to get actually down on your knees and say, Father, help me understand. Help me to grasp this. That's what Mr. Armstrong did, like you're praying to God as you're studying. Then for one hour, I sat in thought and contemplation. You get it? One hour of Bible study, then one hour right after of meditation or contemplation. I turned over in my mind the scriptures I read reflected on my life in recent months. Where am I? Some of you young people in the church here and around the world, you've known about the truth, but the truth doesn't mean to you much to you. How come here I am, a senior in high school, and God seems way off? Have I let the world get the best of me? Maybe you're already in college. Maybe you're already out of college. You're not doing anything. You're just kind of drifting. And here you are at the end of the world. Maybe you don't think it's the end of the age. But as these things happen, it will dawn on you. You're going to live over into a different time that's never been before. Never, ever been before. And it won't be but another five or ten years you'll begin to realize that probably if your mind is open at all, as these terrible things start to happen. I didn't say 20 years. They'll begin to happen within 10 years. And maybe they'll be mainly over within 10 years too. I don't know that. So he began to reflect on the Bible and meditate. Then I spent the next hour talking to God in prayer. One hour of study, one hour of meditation, and then one hour of prayer. Now, I'm not asking all you young people to do that. Most of you are not used to praying very much at all. Maybe you'd have to start with little tiny doses of just 10 minutes of each or something. But this is what he did as an adult man who had made the equivalent of about a million dollars a year up in Chicago at that time and made men very successful and was seeking God with all his heart. And he knew God had called him. And so I decided to continue in this order. One hour in Scripture study one in contemplation, one in prayer. I did not ask God once to heal my wife as yet. I had been doing that for weeks without result. I was fasting and praying not for the purpose of bringing pressure on God. Notice, brethren, you don't fast and say, well, God, I'm real good. I've starved myself for 24 hours, and so now you owe me this. God does not owe you or me anything except death. Every one of us has turned aside and the wages of sin is death. We are under God's mercy. We're under God's grace because of his mercy. He does not know, owe us anything. So we know not fast, you know, lots of Hindus fast, lots of Buddhists fast, Catholics fast, other people fast, some of them in the wrong way, in the wrong attitude, but they'll do without for their gods. So it is not great, some great thing we're doing to miss a meal once in a while. Don't feel so self-righteous if you miss a, a day or two of food. All kinds of millions of people. The monks in the Dark Ages did that. And lots of people in the Buddhist and other religions have done that and are doing that. You don't pray, do that to bring pressure on God to give you what, you're, what you want. But to find out, he said, what was wrong with me. I realized we did not need to nag at God. Never fast as a means of inducing God to answer. 
And gradually, he says, the truth began to pierce through my mind. Gradually, as this process of fasting and prayer continued all day long in the afternoon, he came to realize that he'd been involved as a side issue into this business project. And he'd become much closer to that than to God. And he had been too much time and too much of his mind. He said, I had not stopped Bible study or prayer. He hadn't turned away from God. It's just that that God began to be second, you see. I had not even realized that I had been diminishing it. But now I realized, as you listen, how many of you can realize that, yes, you still study a little bit, you pray a little bit, but sometimes it's mighty little, just 10 or 12 minutes a day or less. And God seems way off many parts of the day because you don't really know God very well and you don't walk with God intimately. And so when trouble comes, you could easily be overcome. You could turn aside. You might not endure to the end, you see, because your mind's been on other things. I had not even realized that I had actually become closer to this clay project that he was on, a kind of clay that would take help heal some of your skin diseases, than I was to God. It was fast becoming first in my mind, my interest, and my time, And notice this, brethren, this is Mr. Armstrong writing, and God will not play second fiddle to anything. Get that. God will not play second fiddle to anything, no matter what it is. Your wife, your husband, your children, your job, your money, your career, your vanity, whatever it is, God will not play second fiddle to anything. You put God first in your life in every way. That's what God wants. That is a matter of worship and adoration of the great creator. So this is what Mr. Armstrong did, and it's a good example of how to fast and to pray, to seek God, to cry out for understanding, to confess your sins and ask help, and a source to examine yourself honestly, to meditate. Often I do that, not as often as I should, but I just think as I'm fasting, well, Father, how far have I come? Here I'm the human evangelist of God and here this work is involved and I'm greatly responsible. I'm not like the Apostle Paul. I'm not like Peter. I'm not like John, the, 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 the wonderful one who lived so long and had this wonderful love and wrote about it more than any other man. I'm certainly not like Jesus Christ. What's wrong with me? Why am I not as strong as I should be? And I think about the things that have happened and what I need to do better. Lots and lots of things. Learn to do that with yourself, brethren, to think, to examine yourself, to meditate, and then devote your fast to seeking God and seek God in the way Mr. Armstrong outlined primarily. There's different ways and modifications, but study, fervent Bible study, thoughtful meditation to think over. Where am I? Why am I weak? Why did I make this mistake? Why do I continue to have these wrong thoughts in my mind? Resentment and bitterness against others. Selfishness, vanity. You young men, why does my mind wander off on these girls all the time in a wrong way? And why do I have these lusts? And why do I allow myself to watch television? Just eating up my time. Your life is so much time. All you people, young people, old people, Why do you do that? Is television your God? To some people it is. It takes up an awful lot of your extra time that you ought to be using to study and to pray or maybe to help others. 
So you need to use the keys to do the right kind of fasting and use your time to study, to pray, to meditate, and to draw close to God. Learn to cut back on your food, brethren, as you're going to fast. Learn to eat less and learn to eat something bland, not some strong something as you begin to uh, fast. A lot of you may not realize that. I know some of the new kids in college or young people I've counseled through the years, an ambassador, they'd have some chili or something just before they'd fast. And it makes them want to just drink like crazy. It's got this hot, this spicy stuff and you want to drink water and then you, you know, you go nuts during your fast because you're so thirsty all the time. Don't do that. When I'm fasting, as my wife can tell you, I usually have her fix poached eggs and toast and maybe a little bit of fruit and uh, maybe a glass of a cup of tea, and that's about it. I read that years ago uh, in a health book, and it's a pretty good way to fast. You start your fast that way. It sounds boring, but I usually end the fast that way too. Something real bland, just one poached egg and maybe just one or two halves of, of, of a piece of a toast, and that's it. And you have a light meal. And uh, then you enter into your fast in that way, something that's not strong, something that's not heavy. Then right after the fast, some of us young men used to rush out after the Day of Atonement and we'd have the great big steak. We could The biggest steak we could get at the Westward Ho Steakhouse or somewhere there in Pasadena. And, of course, your stomach's empty. Then you put this great big steak in there and you're like, oh, and you're like, what's wrong? You're all zonked out. You can hardly think because your body is not used to handling food at all for 24 hours. And all of a sudden you put this mass of food in there. It won't kill you. Chances are I'm still here, <laughs> but it's not the way to do. It kind of makes the fast sort of of none effect. The best way is to enter gradually into eating more. It's easier on your body and your, your bodily functions, your organs, and then you still have a little edge, you see. You still have a little extra hunger, and as your strength comes back, eat a little more and a more, and then you have that zeal, and you can keep that heartfelt attitude longer. And you won't suddenly feel 10 feet tall spiritually right after you fast necessarily. You might, but you might not. But you'll sense nearly always if you fast properly in the days and perhaps weeks following that you have extra help from God Almighty that you didn't have before. And suddenly things open up that didn't open up before you. And I could cite a lot of examples, but I don't want to talk about myself or about specifics too much. But those things do happen. Learn to fast regularly, brethren, unless you're really, really sick. Some of you say you're too old, okay? How many of you are older than I am? I'm 76. Not too many of you are older than that. I still fast. I don't fast as much as I should, but I try to fast once a month, as my wife knows. I can do it. You can do it. Learn to fast and fast regularly about once a month. Do without food totally. Just enter in gradually and pray and study during that day of fasting. And while you're fasting, don't go all day to work. Don't lie out in the sun and just get exhausted to where you've got to have a lot of water. That'll sort of hurt your body and your mind and your whole attitude. Stay indoors mainly. Be quiet. Have a more tranquil day. And if you work, you could work half a day or something and, and uh, not have your heavy things that day. And then spend the night before and the next afternoon and next evening praying and studying and seeking God. So we're able to use that day of fasting to seek God. And that's an important thing. A lot of you could fast occasionally on the Sabbath. You say, when can I do it? Well, you could. You're not always on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a feast day. But it's not wrong to have a spiritual feast. You could fast on a Sunday. 
I, I would like to fast on a Sunday, but I preach so often on the Sabbath, including here and then in outside visits, it's hard for me to fast right after preaching because I have a physical exhaustion Saturday night, so I can't do that. So I'll often fast on a Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week. But anyway, you need to find out. You can find a way to fast. If you want to fast, you'll figure out a way to fast. Use it as a tool to draw close to God and seek God during that fast with all your heart, the Creator. Say, Heavenly Father, help me understand. Show me your will. Teach me your way. And cry out to God for understanding. Cry out to God for mercy and for strength and guidance and faith and courage and wisdom and love. And ask Him for those things as you fast. This is so important. So learn to do this as a way of life, as a way of strength, to give you the strength spiritually to go through the times ahead. Then you can endure to the end because you will have learned to use this tool of fasting and you will have learned to seek God in fasting, in study, in prayer, in meditation and draw close to God. But this practice of seeking God can give you understanding beyond what you have. It can give you greater faith. It can give you much greater spiritual power than you would have any other way. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, brethren, in your New Testament now. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapters we call it. Here in verse 6, our God tells us, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. That's quite a strong statement. It is impossible for you to please God Without faith, you've got to believe. You've got to know He's there. You've got to trust Him. They that put their trust in God, the Bible says that so very, very much. God will bless you if you put your trust in Him. Believe Him. It's impossible to please Him without that faith. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder. Yes, God will bless you. He's alive. He has all the power in the universe. He's real. He is a rewarder of those who do what? Who sit on their hands and go to church and sort of uh, keep out of trouble and they're sort of around. They're nice people, but they're not doing very much spiritually. No, doesn't say that, does it? It says those who diligently seek Him, who study, who pray, who fast, to cry out to God. I'll tell you, brethren, if we can begin to give this kind of people, if the living church of God can get this kind of zeal and this kind of commitment, we're going to see growth, we're going to see miracles, and we're going to see the power of God far beyond what we've ever had before. But we want to realize that. We've got to be a church that seeks God. You say, I came into the church years ago. I don't need to seek God again. Yes, you do. Some of you never went through a traumatic time of seeking God in the first place. You just drifted into it. Or you grew up into, in it. I baptized hundreds of people and hundreds of ambassador college students. And quite a number that I personally baptized were never converted any more than a jackrabbit or Mickey Mouse or anything else. I know that. Some of them later said that themselves and fell away. Why? They just sort of grew up. They had the right answers. They gave all the right answers in counsel, but they didn't really heartfeltly repent. They just did not. It was not a personal thing. I've got to give my life to God. I've got to know and know that I know that the great God of Abraham, the Creator God, inspired this book. 
inspired his law, the Ten Commandments, inspired this way of life. That great God is now intervening. Unless you understand those things, God will not be real to you. And so by seeking God, having this personal approach, this personal experience of crying out to God, seeking God with all your heart and all your soul, God will never be as real to you. You will never have had this personal experience with God that you need. No, without faith it is impossible to please Him. But He does bless those who diligently, not half-heartedly, but diligently seek Him. That word seek is there again. Notice Acts chapter 9. Turn with me, if you would, to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And here we find how Saul, who became the apostle Paul, was a horrible persecutor of the church. He had a great deal of zeal as a man, but he thought these Christians were apostates. They'd fallen away from the God of Israel, and he was really mad at them and killing them and throwing them into jail and beating them up, personally involved in that. And so he was on the road to Damascus in verse 2 to see if any were of that way, the way, a way of life, as they use this term several times, not just an empty belief, but a whole way of life, while light shone from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and this blinding light knocked him down, and, and, and frightened him and stirred him and blinded him. And the voice came out of the light, Saul, Saul, why you're persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he trembling said, What do you want me to do? And so he went into the city as he was told to do. And notice what he did do beside what was told him. He wasn't told to do this as far as we know. Paul had known the Old Testament Scriptures very well. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He'd read all these examples I gave you about Asa and Jehoshaphat and no doubt Hezekiah and all the others who sought God with their hearts in fasting. So what did Paul know to do? Verse 9, He was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Three days of total fasting before God. What do you think he was during during that time? Plague Pinochle? I think you know better. Here was a man who'd read those Old Testament scriptures. He was praying. He was examining himself. He was crying out, God, what's wrong? What have I done? Show me. Help me. And as he prayed, God gave him understanding. And he began to realize. And so then he had a vision from God directly. Verse 10, say, go to Ananias and he will tell you what to do. And Ananias was then told to a man was to come uh, and uh, call the apostle or call Saul. For behold, he is praying. That's down in verse 11. Oh, he was fasting. But you better believe, as it says here, he was praying also. And I'm sure he was meditating. So Ananias came and healed him and baptized him. And Paul's whole life turned around. And one of the most remarkable turnarounds in the history of humanity. A man who was going, as we would say, hell-bent in this direction, turned right around and went just as strongly, if not more so, in the other direction to the end of his life. Absolutely remarkable. But in that time, at the beginning, he prayed and fasted and no doubt meditated for three days as he was blind. What's wrong, Christ? And then soon after he talked about Christ being the Messiah, he didn't understand the gospel too well. I won't take time to go through that. 
but he brought persecution on the church even in Jerusalem. So then they sent him away to Tarsus, and he was over there back home for a while. What was he doing back home? Part of that time, the Bible tells us, he was in Arabia with Christ. And I'm sure he did a lot of prayer and a lot of fasting during that time. Hours and days and weeks, crying out to God to reorient his whole being. And then he became one of the most powerful human beings that God has ever used in the history of the earth. He said, I labored more abundantly than they all, going up and down the Roman Empire and total faith in God. What a remarkable individual. But he turned to God in prayer and fasting. Back in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, brethren, Matthew 6, it tells us here, don't be worrying about what you eat or drink or put on. So many people are saying, oh, well, what's the movie tonight? What's the television tonight? Their mind's on that. What new suit can I get? What new sale can I get? It's not wrong to buy things on sale, by the way. I do that too. And most of my suits I buy for half price. But don't have your mind on that all the time. That's the main thing. Don't worry. For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek again. Here is that word seek. Seek first above everything else. As Mr. Armstrong said, God will not play second fiddle to anything. Seek first. Don't seek first television. Don't seek first to be a success in your business. Don't seek first to get the right girl or fellow to marry or to have a happy marriage. That's important. But seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added. That's what Christ, the Son of God, tells us. So we've got to learn to do that. Back in Jeremiah 29... Turn with me there, if you would. Jeremiah 29, we find a type of what is about to happen to our people once they're taken into this final slavery and in the concentration camps and are finally released by Christ's second coming to come back. This is a type of that, what happened to ancient Judah in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 10, Thus says the Eternal, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. God's not against us. He's not against our nation. He wants us to learn the lessons we need to learn. He can't have the Americans off here wife-swapping and getting into homosexuality and all the other rotten stuff that the British and Canadians and Americans and Australians are doing. They're His people. We're the people that send Bibles and missionaries all over the world. How dare we get into that way of life? But that's what we're doing. But he said, I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And brethren, and all you young people, we have a magnificent hope. We have the chance of being the leaders in another civilization, a whole new dimension, and to help straighten out these problems and this suffering all over the world. If we learn to lodge God's way and learn to do it God's way, tremendous opportunity. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. When's God going to listen to us? I will listen to you, and you will seek me. Notice, seeking again. I, you will seek me at that time when I bring you back and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found of you. Don't do it half-heartedly. Pray your guts out to God. Fast before God. Study the Bible with a sense of purpose, a sense of zeal. I will be found by you and bring you back from your captivity. 
and gather you from all the nations, from all the places where you, where I have driven you, says the Eternal. And I will bring you back to the place from which I cause you, cause you to be carried away captive. I'll bring you back. I'll let you rebuild your cities. I'll bless you. I'll guide you. I'll use you to help others. I'll give you peace and I'll give you joy. If you're willing to learn the lesson and if you're willing to seek God with all your heart and with all your soul. Brethren, let's do that. 